In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O God, for this day. We ask, O Lord, for your strength, your blessing, your mercy upon us. Grant us your peace, O Lord, in all things, and help us, O Lord, to acknowledge you and to see you, O Lord, clearly in our lives day by day. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Good evening, everybody. Um, God willing, today we're gonna have another uh, Q&A session. If you would like to submit any questions uh, to be answered in any future sessions, you can do so at the link on the slide um, on your screen. Um, we'd love to get questions from you know all kinds of different people um, about different topics. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So first question is, could you explain the interior of the church and why everything is the way that it is? Um, so the, the, the um, kind of the foundation or the, the reason or the structure, the way that the church is structured from the inside is based on the way that the tabernacle was structured uh, in the Old Testament, okay? So um, you see here on your screen, there's a kind of a parallel between, I know it's not a very clear picture, but the parallel between um, the church on the left and the tabernacle on the right. We know that um, God gave Moses very specific instructions down to the exact dimensions um, of how the tabernacle and then subsequently the temple, which is kind of just like a bigger version of the tabernacle, um, should be. And there are separate sections uh, uh, of, the, of the tabernacle, right? So on the very outside, you have what's called the outer court. And then uh, inside the building, it's broken up into two sections. The first section is called the holy. And then the innermost section is called the holy of holies. Um, this is the place where the Ark of the Covenant would be kept, and this is the place where only the high priest could enter only once a year um, to offer sacrifice on behalf of the people, okay? Um, there's other things uh, about the, the tabernacle uh, that we should also pay attention to, like the direction that, um, that, that the, the tabernacle would be facing, okay? Um, so before Christianity, okay, um, Prayers in the temple, they were offered uh, toward the temple. So, so whenever you have the, 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 I'm talking now about prayers that are offered in, you know, anywhere else, not, not in the temple itself. But everyone who would be praying anywhere around the world would be pointing toward Jerusalem, like in the, in the prayer, okay? And so the, the orientation of all of the people when they pray, they pray uh, face in Jerusalem. Okay, um, in the church, we build our churches facing the east uh, because we believe that the Lord, when he returns in the second coming, will come from the east. Okay, um, Tertullian, he's one of the scholars of the church. He said, some assumed that the sun is the God of the Christians because it's a well-known fact that we pray toward the east. This is like a, a quotation from um, one of the early scholars of the church that kind of indicates that even in the early church, they prayed toward the East. Um, there's another document called the Apostolic Constitutions. It also says the church must be oblong in form and pointing to the East. The, the idea of the East is that East represents Christ, okay? 
Um, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, uh, the Lord is referred to as the son of righteousness, son as in S-U-N, right, as, as symbolically here, like Christ is the son. So because the sun rises in the east, um, and also because in Matthew 24, it says, for as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the son of man be. So it's like the, 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 the coming of the son of man is like will be like a flash of lightning from the east to the west. So for this, all these reasons, and from the tradition and the early church, we face the East. East represents um, like salvation. East represents the coming of the Lord. East represents that we are praying toward God, facing God in that direction, okay? Um, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle actually would be facing the West, right? Um, and this also has a symbolic understanding. Whenever in the church we face West, it has like the opposite meaning of East. Right. If East represents looking toward God, then West represents away from God. West represents looking away from him. That's why in the baptism, um, part of the baptism is uh, a vow that is taken. Um, and the vow is taken by like, the parents of the child being baptized or the person being baptized themselves if they're an adult. And in this vow, there's two parts. There's one part where the person who is making the vow, the person to be baptized, he faces the West, okay, and he says like a vow renouncing Satan, okay. So the reason this is said facing the West is because West represents the the like like away from God or or the devil or demon something demonic, and then after they renounce the devil, then they look toward the East, and now facing the East, they make a proclamation of faith and and the the, the belief in God, right? Because now we are faith facing God, of course. It's not that if you don't pray in these exact directions that somehow God will not hear our prayers. This is more of a symbolic um, to try to keep us um, aware of and thinking about, you know, that we are praying all to one God, you know, and if you can think about it, that every single Christian, you know, at least Orthodox Christian um, in the world, that when they stand to pray, even in their own houses, they will face the East. So it's like we're all, even though we're in separate places and in different churches and in different homes, but we all stand and we face in the same direction as though we are praying together as the body of Christ, praying to our father all at once, okay, in one voice. Um, so that's why we face the East. This has to do with the, the orientation of the church, okay? Um, as far as the style, okay? So as I mentioned, the style is based on the tabernacle. So um, the Holy of Holies, okay? So this is the, the innermost part where the Ark of the Covenant is. This corresponds to what we have in the church, which is the sanctuary. Okay, the sanctuary is, and, and this can be confusing because in, in, in a lot of times when we want to just differentiate, so like we have the church building, right? When we refer to the church, you can say the whole building is the church, right? But sometimes when you want to differentiate, say, um, where inside the church, right? You want to use a word to describe the actual church itself, as opposed to the dining hall, as opposed to the hallways, as opposed to the classrooms, you know. Um, and sometimes people use the word sanctuary to describe the church itself, okay? That's technically not correct, okay? And, and, and part of the reason of using this terminology has to do with the Protestant tradition, okay? Because in the Protestant tradition, they don't differentiate between these different sections of the church, and they consider the whole church as a sanctuary, okay? But in the Orthodox Church, because we have... Um, you know, because we have an altar, because we offer a sacrifice, and because the church is structured 
as the, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, we don't refer to the whole church as a sanctuary, okay? Because the sanctuary is the part that is, uh, you know, the innermost part, the part where the altar is, right? The, the part where the priest stands before the altar. This is what's called the sanctuary, and this corresponds to the holies of holies. This is the, the, the part where the, the, the offering is, is, is offered to God, okay? The next part, which in the tabernacle is called the holy, okay? This is, is called the nave, the nave of the church, okay? And the nave of the church <clears throat> includes a part in the front called the chorus. So the, the part on the front of the church where you have uh, the deacons are standing, this part is called the chorus, and it is part of the nave, okay? And the nave and the sanctuary are separated by the iconostasis. Okay, so the iconostasis is that big, like, wooden wall um, that you see um, that's separating the deacons and the rest of the church from the sanctuary. And this is the this wall has all these different pictures of uh, of saints and angels. Um, and this kind of reminds us of like the victorious church. It reminds us of those who came before us, who have you know. Um, have, have entered into heaven, that we look forward to meeting with them in heaven. They pray for, with us and they pray for us. And we also um, pray for them and ask for their prayers, right? So we are like the church that's on earth, which we call the struggling church. Um, and then we have the church in heaven, which we call the victorious church. So all of the images of the icons that we have um, all over the church reminds us of um, of kind of the fact that the, the church is a heavenly place and that we are in the presence of the heavenly beings, okay? So the iconostasis is what separates the sanctuary from the nave. The, the iconostasis has three doors. It has three doors. There's two side doors. They're typically smaller doors. Um, these doors are made for the deacons, the deacons to go in and out um, of the sanctuary, okay? And then you have the main door, uh, which is called the royal door. This is this door is intended only for the priest. Okay, um, all of the doors are uh, closed with curtains. Sometimes people use the word veil to describe these curtains. Why do people do that? It's because in the Old Testament there was a curtain as well that separated the holy of holies from the holy. Okay, and that curtain was called a veil. But the concept of the veil is that a veil is like um, like a separator that is like keeping somebody out, like keeping something hidden that cannot be seen, okay? Um, but in the New Testament, and actually um, we know um, in, in the Bible, it tells us that um, on the day of the crucifixion, after the Lord was crucified, the veil of the temple was torn in two by God. God tore it from the top to the bottom in half, right, representing the idea that now we have reconciliation with the Father because the Lord shed his blood for us and we have salvation. We have been reconciled with the Father and there is no more separation between us and the Father. We are no longer strangers to the Father, but we can become children of God through baptism. So, so we don't use the word veil to describe those curtains because the veil has a connotation of what, what existed in the Old Testament, which was torn, right? There is no veil. The curtain is just a separator just to kind of separate one area from the other, but it is not, it is not something that is to, intended to keep someone out in the sense that we, no long, we do not have access to God, right? All of the people have access to the sacrament. 
yes, not everybody goes into the sanctuary, but everyone has access to the sacrament, right? That the priest is offering in the sanctuary and we all partake of it, which is the body and the blood of the Lord, right? So there is no separation between us and God. So we don't call it the veil, we just call it the curtain, okay? And there's typically, again, because there's three doors, there's typically the three curtains that separate um, the, the sanctuary from the nave, okay? Um, the nave is where the people sit. So typically all the chairs, the pews that you'll find in the church, this is the nave. This is where the people are, okay? Then you have um, another area, okay, which is in the very, very back, okay? And this is called the narthex. In the church, it's called the narthex. Um, this is the equivalent of, in the Old Testament, the uh, courtyard, okay? The courtyard, the outer court of the sanctuary, which is an outdoor area, okay? And the, and the Old Testament and the tabernacle, this corresponds to the narthex. What we typically call the foyer of the church, the lobby of the church, the, 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 the place where you first walk in, when you come from the outside, you open the doors and you walk in, that is the narthex, Okay. Um, we usually don't use that word to describe it, but that's that's the technical term for it. Okay, and this narthex in, in in the tradition of the church, this is where the catechumens would would attend, would stand and attend the liturgy of the word. So we know that the the liturgy is broken up into different sections. Okay, the liturgy of the word. This is the the part of the liturgy where we read all of the readings. So we read. Um, you know, the Pauline epistle, the Catholic epistle, the Acts, the Synexarian, the gospel, and the psalm, right? This uh, part of the, of the liturgy is for teaching. That's the primary purpose of that part of the liturgy, right? The liturgy of the faithful, which comes afterward, okay, is more for, uh, is, is more for, um, uh, sorry. Uh, it's, it's for the prayers uh, in preparation for taking communion. It's for the coming down of the Holy Spirit to transform the bread and the wine into the body and the blood of Christ, right? So this is liturgy of the faithful is intended for the, those who are already believers, right? The people that are going to take communion. So in the, in the early church, the catechumens, which are those people who want to be baptized, right? But have not yet been baptized and joined the church, they would not enter into the church itself, right? They would stay in the narthex, okay, which is right outside of the main church, okay? And they would attend the liturgy of the word, okay? And then in the part of the liturgy where essentially um, the deacon asks the catechumens to leave, this is the part in the church where um, the part of the liturgy where the, where the deacon says, offer, 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 okay? Um, right at the beginning, okay, uh, after the prayer of reconciliation, um, this part is where the catechumens who are standing in the narthex, this is when they would depart, okay? Traditionally, that was what, what, was the, what the narthex was used for. Really, nowadays, we don't use the narthex for anything other than just kind of like a, like a congregating area outside of the main church, and catechumens are allowed to come into the nave um, just like anyone else, and they actually um, attend the entire liturgy. Um, they just don't take communion in the end, but they can attend the entire liturgy, okay? Um, one of the aspects of the narthex, okay, is that this is where the baptismal font is. And, and one of the things in the Old Testament that the tabernacle had was the bronze laver. And the bronze laver is like a, like a basin for washing, okay? And <clears throat> the equivalent of this in the New Testament is the baptismal font, 
which is the tub that we use for baptizing people, okay? And so the, the reason of the location of the baptismal font being in the narthex, okay? One, yes, it corresponds to the laver um, in the outer court of the tabernacle. But also if you, if you think about the progression, right? From, from west to east in the church, when you first walk into the church, the first step to kind of participate in the life of the church is baptism, right? Because you can't, you can't, you know, do anything. You can't, you can't partake in communion. You're not a member of the church um, until you have been baptized, right? So this is like the birthplace for for a Christian, right? The place where they would, the, the place where they would first go, they, is is there. So so when you first walk in the church, you have the narthex. It's the place where, as a catechumen, you would hear the word of God. Once you are ready for baptism, you would then be baptized in the baptismal font, which is there in the narthex area. Then you would be permitted to go into the nave, okay, where you would attend the liturgy of the faithful, right? And then you would partake of um, the Holy Communion there, okay? Um, one other interesting point is um, as far as the, out, the outer doors, so we, we said about how the, the iconostasis has three doors, right? Two on the sides and the main door in the middle. Um, as far as the outer doors of the church, okay, um, according to tradition, okay, it's mentioned in the Didache, um, the Didache is, is one of the early church documents. Um, it says this, it says the church must have three doors according to the Holy Trinity. So you'll see um, in Coptic churches that are built um, according to the Coptic architecture, right? Like our, our church, St. Paul, was not built according to the Coptic architecture. It was, a, it was a renovation of an existing building that wasn't a church. So that's why you'll notice a lot of these aspects that I'm talking about don't really apply um, to our church. God willing, when we build a church, we will, we will do this. Um, but the outer doors, if you've been to other churches um, th that are built as Coptic churches, you, you might notice that there's three doors from the outside. Typically, people only maybe use one of the doors, right? But there, there are three um, on the west side. So right on the west side of the building, of course, you can have other doors on the sides of the building and so on. But on the west side of the building, the tradition is to have three doors that represent um, the Holy Trinity. Um, one last point about the shape of the church. Okay, um, there's three primary shapes uh, that a church can be built as. Um, the first is uh, a church that's built in the shape of a cross. Right, so you have like one long dimension and then another like cross uh, part uh, 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 going across in the middle of the church. That's one shape. Um, of course, the symbolism there is obvious. Um, the second is a circle, okay, which kind of represents infinity or eternity, that the church is endless in time, that the church and God are like outside of time. There's no beginning or end to God. Um, and then the third, uh, one is to build it in the shape of an ark or like a ship, okay, shape. Um, and this represents that the church is the ark of salvation. It's like a place of safety and protection from the corruption that's in the world. It's a place of, of salvation for all people. Just like um, in the story of Noah, um, the, the, the ark of Noah was a place of safety in, in the midst of the flood. And anyone who would enter into the ark would be saved from the flood and the destruction that was happening from the outside. So in a very brief sense, this is kind of explaining the, the style of the church from the inside, um, why, why it's structured that way and the shape of the church from the outside as well. <clears throat> Number two.
The Catholic Church describes the process of change of the bread and wine to the body and blood of our Lord Jesus by the term transubstantiation. I never heard that term in our church, though. Do we acknowledge that term? Okay. So the term transubstantiation, okay, is a Catholic term, and it describes this process um, of change of the bread and the wine that we pray on in the altar to the blood, to the body and blood of Christ. In a, in a way that's attempting to explain the mystery, okay? Um, one aspect of the Catholic Church is they, they have something called scholasticism. Scholasticism is essentially trying to take um, kind of these spiritual topics and trying to talk about them in a very rigor, like rigorously academic way, in a way to, to describe things in a scholastic way, right? Um, to try to like understand them uh, like very precisely, okay? But one of the problems that happens when we begin to try to think about these things in that way is we don't, we don't know, like God, like how is it that we know anything? Like the only reason that we know anything about heaven, about God, about salvation, about, our, you know, is because God reveals it to us. Like as human beings, we can observe the world around us and we can make, uh, we can learn, we can make observations, we can do experiments, we can gain knowledge, we can make hypotheses, we can build theories, we, we can test our theories, we can see if they're, you know, repeatable and, and the, we get the outcome we expect. That's the way we discover things about the world. You know, for instance, the, the field of science um, is a field that, for the most part, human beings have discovered right everything about the world through just observation right and and have gotten very sophisticated in making those observations and understanding those things okay but but that's because we can observe the physical world because we are part of the physical world we have senses to observe the physical world and so we're able to observe the physical world and make those determinations okay but when you're speaking about god and anything in the spiritual you're not talking about the physical world anymore you're talking about a spiritual world you're talking about an invisible world, a world that is invisible to our senses. Now, certainly as Christians being filled with the Holy Spirit, we perceive God, we experience God, but we don't perceive him or experience him in an academically scientific way. We experience him in a way that sometimes it's even difficult to describe to other people how we experience him and, 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 how, and how he works in our lives and so on, right? So we can't take the same philosophy, uh, we can't take the same approach as, as we do in science and in worldly observations and apply them to God, okay? And, and this is one of the problems of scholasticism in general, is it makes an attempt to do this and it, it often falls into certain pitfalls and traps because you, you essentially are left with trying to invent theories and, and understand things that you really don't understand and can't understand. Okay, so for instance, in this um, idea of transubstantiation, the Catholic Church makes this distinction between what they refer to as accidents and substance. Okay, accidents and substance. Okay, well, what is that? Accidents are kind of like the outward appearance of something, right? Um, whereas substance is the internal reality of something that doesn't change. So for instance, you might have a, a human being, right? A human being, the accidents of a human being is the outer appearance. Like 
the color of the hair and the shape and the weight and the size and the you know posture and all these things about a human being from the outside and actually you know when you look at for instance a young child like a baby okay and compare that to when that child grows up and being you know an old man or old woman right they look extremely different right from the outside but the inner reality is they are the same person right the same person that has gone through this process of change right and so according to this idea the accidents are this outward appearance that can change but the substance is unchanging okay which is the person is the same person all throughout this process of aging so as it applies when you take this dogma and apply it to the eucharist <clears throat> it's essentially the opposite okay the opposite meaning that when it comes to the eucharist the accidents are what are remaining unchanged because the bread and the wine continue to look like bread and wine all throughout the process of transformation okay but the internal substance is what changes from that of bread and wine to that of body and blood okay so this is again this is the catholic view like i'm not i'm not saying we are thinking this way this is the catholic view but you get into these philosophical arguments where you try to describe the nature of things um, in a way that can become you know like like very philosophical okay and and in the end like we don't have any evidence to show exactly what is happening like we don't know at all what is happening so trying to create a theory around something that is totally invisible with no way of doing any observations or measurements or anything like that to tell us anything about it in the orthodox church we just refuse to do it you know we don't even try to talk about the concept of transubstantiation. We don't try to talk about accidents versus substance. We just say, we just use the term change, okay? The bread and the wine, they change to become the body and blood of Christ. We acknowledge that it's a mystery and we acknowledge that we have no idea how it happens, that we have no, no way to describe the process, okay? That, that it's happening in, okay? Um, Actually, in the Protestant Reformation, okay, we know the, the Protestant Reformation came as a protest from members of the Catholic Church against the Catholic Church, which eventually formed into the Protestant Church, right? So Martin Luther, he was the kind of the spearhead, the leader of this Protestant uh, Reformation movement, okay? He also, at the time, okay, when looking at this idea of transubstantiation, he also rejected it. Okay, for similar reasons, <clears throat> but he used a different word. He, re he referred to as consubstantiation. Okay, consubstantiation uh, has the meaning of like equality, like being meaning equal. So he's saying what the, the belief that the bread and the wine coexist alongside with the body and blood. So it's like two things at once. It's the, the, the bread and the wine and the body and the blood. We also don't accept this term, right? Because again, we're not, we're not trying to probe any deeper into the, the, the reality of what's actually happening to make this change. But we do truly believe that this is the body and the blood of Christ and that is necessary for our salvation. And what Christ said, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you have no life in you. So this is what we believe. But we don't try to explore or go deeper into the process by which this happens. We simply believe that it happens as a mystery and we accept it by faith without trying to apply some kind of philosophy to it, to apply some kind of scholastic, academic, rigorous understanding to the process, to something that 
was never revealed to us or never explained how it could be. Okay, so that's so we don't accept the term transubstantiation. Okay, even though we we agree with the Catholic faith that it does become the body and blood of Christ, but we we don't talk about the process. We just say it, it is the body and blood becomes the body and blood. Okay, number three. Why do we say, Lord, have mercy three times after the litany of the seeds and herbs? Okay, so, so just to give a background of what, of what this litany is. So we know that in the liturgy of the faithful, right, in the, in the St. Basil liturgy that we pray, uh, in the part of the liturgy of the faithful, right after the consecration, right? So the consecration is the part where um, the priest is praying for the bread and the wine to become the body and blood of Christ. Okay, this part is called the consecration or the sanctification, also called the institution narrative is another name for that part. Immediately after this part, there is what are called the seven short litanies, okay? And these litanies are litanies where we are asking God for things, okay? The, the position of these litanies immediately after the consecration has a meaning because it's like once the consecration is complete, now the bread that is on the altar is, is Christ, right? This is, this is Christ. Like he is present with us and physically, like in, on, in the church on the altar. So now being present, we start to ask him for the things that we want, right? We, we're asking him, we're making our requests, our supplications to him. So we start praying for the peace of the church, the fathers of the church, the clergy of the church, for the salvation of the people we and, you know, and, and, and we, we pray for a lot of things. And one of the things we pray for is what's called the litany of the seasons. <clears throat> and the litany of the seasons, okay, so um, it's actually three different litanies. And each one of the three is prayed according to the time of year, okay? So, so there's one that is asking God to bless like the air of heaven. There is one that's asking God to bless the waters. There's one that's asking God to bless the plants, okay? And the, the three, these three litanies kind of correspond with like the agricultural seasons in Egypt because agriculture was such a huge part of the livelihood of the Egyptians, okay? So they prayed for each of these things individually and depending on the season of the year, they would pray for one or the other or the other, okay? So the litany of the seeds and herbs is one of the litany of the seasons that's prayed um, according to the time of year in, as a part of these uh, seven short litanies. All of the seven short litanies, okay, there, there is a part where the people respond and they say, Lord, have mercy, okay? But the litany of the seasons, okay, is the only one where the people say, Lord, have mercy three times, like in, in succession, okay? So the question here is, why? Why is it that the litany of the seasons is the one that has three Lord have mercies when all the others are not? I couldn't find any definitive answer about this, but I was told that um, it, it could be because the litany, this litany was so much related to the livelihood of the people because they, their whole economy essentially um, was based on uh, agriculture and being able to survive and have food to eat, right? So it was something so important to, to the Coptic people to where they would like be asking God like in a very fervent way, asking him, Lord have mercy three times, okay? I also thought it could be 
because even though we are praying like one of these three litanies out loud according to the season, but it's like we are asking God to bless all three, right? The air, the water, the plants, even though we are not audibly praying the litany of these others, but we are asking God for, you know, to bless everything. Okay, so that's another reason I thought, but again, I, I couldn't find this written um, anywhere. One other interesting note is um, in the West, you know, because I mean, clearly these litanies are very much related to agriculture in Egypt and the seasons of Egypt. Um, something that was done when we came to the United States, when the Coptic church came to the United States is there was a new litany that was written, which is a litany that combines these three together, right? The air, the water, and the plants. But the idea that, you know, like, you know, in America, you know, we have, we, we need to pray for them, right? Agriculture is still an important thing here, but maybe we don't have the seasons um, that uh, are present in Egypt, right? According to those time periods um, based on uh, the flooding season and all of that. So they can be all prayed all three every time, right? So um, th th that's another option as well, is you can pray like a combination um, of these three. Number four. Why do we kiss the palm of, uh, and back of our hands when we give thanks to God in prayer? So this is... Um, you know, this is this is something where people will kiss their hands like this, like this, and like this, like in both the front, the front and the back. Um, this is not so much a Coptic rite; like this isn't part of the rite of the Coptic Church. It's more of like a tradition um, in Egypt, and and this is uh, representing thanksgiving for for the things that God has given us and the things that God has not given us, right? So kissing, kissing the palm, like this is representing the things God has given me, like the things that I can take that God has allowed me to have. And kissing the back represents like the things that God has not given me. You know, the things that the things that God has chosen not to give me. Right. I'm also thanking God for those things, because in the end, we believe that whatever God gives or God does not give is good. OK, but again, this is not something that is um this isn't something that must be practiced in the church or anything like that. This is this is just a tradition, um, you know, in the Egyptian culture for Thanksgiving um, has nothing to do really with the church. So you might find people doing that, but, you know, that's that's just an optional thing that people are choosing to do. Number five, I have recently been more drawn to listening to the news more often than ever. Is it edifying to listen to the news? If so, how much should I give it so it doesn't take more of my time than it needs to take? So I, I feel like this is a very important question because it, it it goes to something deeper than just watching the news. So, but what is what is the news? Let's just ask ourselves, what is the news? Why does the news exist, right? So in an ideal world, and now I'm speaking ideologically, in an ideal world, okay, what is the purpose of the news? It's to inform, right? Like the world, the world is a very big place and there's a lot of important things happening all over the world every day, okay? And obviously each of us cannot be personally in those places to hear and absorb and see and experience and know what is going on in all of these places all over the world every day, right? It's not, it's not possible. It's not possible for me to be present at the White House, you know, to hear what the president is saying, it's not possible. It's not possible for me to be in 
China to hear what the Chinese president is saying. It's not possible for me to be aware of what all the companies in the world are doing. It, it, it's not possible, right? So the idea of the press, okay, is these are people whose full-time job is to be aware of things, to know things, is to be present at all of these important events, is to ask the powerful people important questions so that we can understand what their plans are, what they're doing, why they did what they did, you know, what they're planning to do in the future. And if there is corruption, if there is something that, um, you know, is, is going that's wrong, is that that would be revealed, right? Because, because now we have people that are aware of it, right? And then those people, the press, they report to the rest of the world, um, here are the facts, here's the things that have happened. So now all the people in the world are informed, and then those people can then make decisions based on, um, you know, what, what they've learned, right? You know, maybe a lot of that stuff that's happening is not important, but some things are important, and maybe some of those things are important are going to affect my decisions. And, and very importantly, being in a democracy, um, they help us make decisions about who or what we should vote for, uh, you know, how we want the world to change, how we want it to say the same, you know, what things that we promote, what things we're against, right? To, to shape the future, to shape our generation, to shape the world in a, in a better way because we are informed of what's going on, right? So this is, this is why, um, you know, th this is why it exists. This is why the press exists, right? Um, but sadly, okay, um, in, in, in reality, okay, especially nowadays, there are very few places where this type of objective news can be found, right? Um, watching the news can be very misleading, okay? Because the people who have been assigned this job of reporting the facts in an objective way um, are no longer really doing that. They're not reporting in an objective way. They have their own biases, they have their own input, they have their own desires, they have their own interpretations, they have their own goals, they have all of this. And now being given the power of being the ones to essentially filter um, what it is that the rest of the world sees and hears and knows and experiences can use this power to begin to influence the world, right? The, the role of the press was never to influence the world. It was to give the world the information Okay, and then the people decide what they want to do with that information. The people that decide what they think is good, what they think is bad, you know, what they want to uh, celebrate and what they want to condemn. That's that's really the the what the world is going to do with this information. But instead, what a distorted press, what a biased press does, is they become the ones to decide for the rest of the world what should be celebrated and what should be condemned, and they will present the information or leave out certain pieces of information um, in such a way to manipulate the information being presented to instead of being kind of these objective, nonpartisan uh, voices, right, that simply tell us what's happening, they essentially take on political power themselves by manipulating the narrative and manipulating what it is that the rest of the world hears, okay? Um, and this can be very dangerous, right? Um, so, so that's one reason why I would say that there is diminishing returns from, from watching the news, okay? The news is not just about getting information and making good decisions about the world. The, the, the news is, is, is more sensational. 
it's more about opinion uh, and it's more uh, about manipulation. Um, and so the more I subject myself to this, these voices, the more I might be deceived by them. Okay, the more I might be deceived by them. So there is actually a downside of listening to a lot of news for that reason alone, just for the idea of being deceived and manipulated. Okay. Um, also, there are some harms to it. Like, so for instance, um, negative news tends to be very, very overreported compared to positive news. Nobody wants to hear positive news. Positive news doesn't get ratings. You know, you don't get people to want to watch news by reporting on all the good things that are happening in the world, even though there are good things. So what ends up being getting reported is a lot of negative things. And those negative things, the more we watch them in the news, we can get very anxious, you know, day after day after day of, of disasters and scandals and, and, and murders and all kinds of crime and, and you know, and, and, and collapses of different things and countries being overthrown. And, you know, the more, the more we watch that, it can start to make us very anxious and, and worried about this, the world and, 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 and not in a way that can allow us to take a positive action, you know? Like, like it's good to know the negative things that are happening in the world because that's a reality. Um, but, but when it's in a, in, a, in, a, in a way where I can take some positive action to maybe try to improve it or to help it or to change it, but, but when we are just simply constantly presented with a lot of negative things, that can, we cannot change, um, at some point, it just becomes harmful to us to, to, to immerse ourselves in that um, a lot, okay? Also, watching a lot of news can be very distracting, right? Because it can be addictive um, and we just, we, we see some narrative unfolding and every day we wanna, you know, see what happens next, what happens next, what happens next. Um, and it can be something that's very distracting from other more important things in our lives, you know? Um, like things in our spiritual life, serving other people, spending time with our family, like all kinds of other things that we could be doing that were, you know, maybe sucking our time to watching all this news. Um, which again, I'm not trying to say it's wrong not to, to watch news at all, but we should just be aware of these things. And like there's diminishing returns. I can watch a little bit. I can read a little bit. I can be, un I can understand, but not to the point where it's consuming my life. Right. And that's really the, my conclusion of this is that we should watch news in limited amounts because not watching at all and being completely oblivious to what's happening in the world is also harmful. You know, it's also like, you know, they say like the people who don't understand history are the ones that are doomed to repeat it. If, if we don't, or if we are not aware at all of what's happening in the world, what's happening in our community and our society and our government and so on, then we have no basis to make any decisions and, and, you know, Voting, for instance, is, is a very important obligation and responsibility that all of us have, because in the end, like, you know, we are the ones that are deciding what the leadership is of our country, right? Um, it, yes, there's obviously a lot of manipulation and, and influencing by all kinds of factors and people and forces and whatnot. But in the end, right, it's supposed to be the vote of the, of the citizen, right, who is the one to um, decide the direction that we want the country to go. And so we have an obligation to be informed about the most important things, but that doesn't mean to be um, consumed and obsessed um, with it, you know? Uh, I remember when I was a child and my parents would watch the news, it would just be like a person sitting at a desk talking for 30 minutes 
in a very boring way. I'm just reporting facts and information. You know, that's that's what the news was back then. Now the news is like a big money industry, right? Where people are expressing their opinions and arguings and making wild claims. And they do it because they make money and ratings, right? Doing that. So we should understand that there is a limit of what I can get from such a system. Yes, there is some truth that can be gleaned from it. There's some understanding, but um, th there is a limit. Also, we shouldn't get the news that we listen to from a single source, because um, if, if there is bias, like we're saying, then we want to hear the other side. You know, we want to hear the other side. I shouldn't just listen to the people that agree with what I think, right? I should also listen to people who believe the opposite of what I think, um, just so that I get a different perspective on, on what they're saying. And, and, and maybe the reality is somewhere in between the two extremes that I'm being presented, right? We should try to verify at least the most important things. We should try to verify them with other sources so that we can say, okay, is this really true or not? What's the real story behind this? Okay. Also understand who is reporting the news to you, right? Who are these people? When I'm watching like a news station or reading an article, who is this person? What else have they reported? Have they been reliable in their reporting in the past? What is their personal views? How is it that their personal views are leaking into the articles that they're writing? Like there is, his, there is like, you know, by reputation, there are certain people or certain organizations that are far more objective than others, right? Try to find those people and try to follow those people rather than maybe to go after certain people that uh, a lot of times make wild claims that are not true. Um, and then finally, I would say when, when we're, we're watching the news or reading the news, we should always remind ourselves that no matter how bleak things look, that God is the one still in control. And in the end, all of this stuff that's happening in the world, even though it seems big and powerful and, 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 and out of control and, 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 you know, but, but in the end, God is the one in control. Like God, God will take whatever the human beings are doing and he will turn it to whatever purposes he wants. So regardless of who is in office, regardless of what the government is, regardless of the scandals happening in the world, regardless of the lies of people and whatnot, in the end, no one is going to get away with anything, right? Because God is the ultimate judge. And even if they get away with it here on earth for a time, God is the ultimate judge. So we live according to our principles as Christians. Um, we try to be informed as much as we can, but don't be obsessed and fall into this trap of just wanting to consume news all the time when it's not really edifying to us. Number six, when I fail in something or face problems, I usually find myself quick to give up and thinking that I'm a failure in everything. What is your advice on how to properly deal with failures and problems so I may benefit from them and not let them cause me to give up hope or be dysfunctional? So it's a very common trap that when we, get, that when we um, fail in some way or criticize in some way, or realize that we have a weakness in something that we didn't realize that we had before, or face some kind of obstacle, you know, difficult obstacle, especially when it's a chronic obstacle that's kind of an ongoing problem, or when we don't get the results that we want. It's, it's, it's very common that when we experience these things, like, is that we want to give up, right? It's, it's, it's part of our defense mechanism, you know? If I'm doing a job, somebody criticizes me for what I'm doing, I become upset, I want to give up. Um, if I'm dealing, working with someone on a team, 
and that person has a personality that's difficult for me to deal with, or we have a misunderstanding about something, causes me conflict and stress, I just want to give up. It's not worth it. I'm going to quit. Okay. This concept can apply to the service in the church, can apply to career, can apply to relationships, can apply to all kinds of things. Okay. The idea of being determined and committed to doing something, right? And to do it not because it's easy, but to do it because it's important, to do it because it's right, right? That is an important principle for us to understand um, as individuals and as a society, right? That we should not give up on something simply because it's difficult and we should not expect more from ourselves than is realistic, okay? So there's a few things we should keep in mind. The first is we are not, we should not expect to be successful all the time, right? Actually, if I expect myself to be successful all the time, this stems from internal pride inside of me, right? When I fail and then quit, is it because that I want to avoid the experience and the realization that I'm actually imperfect, right? That there is something that I couldn't do. There's something that I failed to do. There's something that, that maybe somebody could have done better than me, right? Is, is, is it when I fail, right? Do I quit because I realize that I am not perfect, okay? This is especially true if the failure that I, that I failed is a public one, something that is seen by others and not just a private failure that only I know about. But a person who is humble truly, truly believes, right? That, that they are imperfect right? That they have weaknesses, that they have things that about them that are not right, right? That are not perfect. And they use these opportunities, these failures as opportunities to grow rather than reasons to quit, right? Um, occasional failure, um, you know, is, is actually something that we should expect, okay? And, and failures are the greatest motivators for growth because when we realize something that's, that's wrong, we can correct it, we can change it, we can improve it, right? Such a person who is willing to learn from their failures is actually has the most potential than any other person. Like, you know, you can, it's kind of like, you know, the, the tortoise and the hare, you know, you have one person who maybe um, is very talented, very um, intelligent, uh, you know, always successful, okay? And this person, when you look at them and say, wow, this person really is succeeding and achieving a lot in their life. And then you have another person who maybe doesn't have all of those skills, all of those talents, all that experience, all that stuff. But what they do have is uh, the ability to learn from their mistakes, the ability to look at themselves in a sober way, uh, the humility to admit that they're wrong. And that person will eventually catch up and you know, exceed and, and, and succeed more than the first. Because the first person, if they are not willing to admit their mistakes, then they are very limited on how far they can grow. Maybe they have a big head start. You know, maybe they have a big head start because they are already so talented in what they are doing. They already have a lot of strengths. But the person who starts out very behind, but is willing to admit their, their failures and is willing to continue without giving up, that person will, will eventually excel and succeed um, the first, right? So we should not expect to be successful all the time. We should learn from our mistakes. The second is we should expect criticism, right? In Proverbs 27, it says, open rebuke 
is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. What we usually want is the flattery. What we usually want is the people to come and say, you did a great job, okay? Because that makes us feel good. But what if that's not really true, okay? Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. So sometimes the criticisms that we receive might actually be very helpful, right? Um, criticism can come in two forms. One, it can come from a friend that is offering constructive criticism. That's one type of criticism. Or it could come from someone who just wants to tear us down, just someone who wants to, to mock us, to insult us, who rejoices at our failure, right? This could be a second type of criticism. But our response should be actually, in both situations, the same. We should look objectively at the criticism, right, that we have received and take the good from it and leave the bad, right? It might be embarrassing to admit um, because other people have maybe noticed a mistake that I made, a weakness that I have. But again, like we said before, this is just a normal part of being a human being, of being a person that has flaws. A wise person is the one that admits that this criticism is true and accepts it and works with it. But the foolish person is the one that refuses to acknowledge there is anything lacking in themselves, in their character, in their work, and what they've done. And they continue to walk down a path without ever growing, right? So we should expect criticism. There shouldn't be a reason to quit. We should expect criticism. Also, we should expect ongoing problems. We shouldn't expect smooth sailing in anything that we do. Conflict, right? It might not just come in the form of like a comment, like a critical comment, but it might come in the form of an ongoing adversarial relationship with another person that I have to deal with on a regular basis. Like you have people on a team working together Right. And maybe they're at odds with each other. Maybe there is animosity between them. Maybe there is, you know, they don't see it eye to eye. They don't have the same perspective, you know, and being in a, in a team working with somebody like this can be very, very taxing, very difficult. Right. I'm, I'm forced to work with this person. I, you know, maybe I feel bad just by by seeing them, just by seeing their face, just by hearing their voice. And I'm aggravated on a regular basis. And again, my my instinct might be that I want to quit. Right. But Again, maybe I'm trying to quit, right? But, but if everyone who experiences any negative obstacle like this or any ongoing problem quits, then we'll have so many people quitting. This is actually, sadly, why the divorce rate is so high. It's because people are, are not willing to, to work more on trying to improve their relationships. And their first instinct when things don't go the way they want is to leave. Look at, for instance, all the obstacles that St. Paul faced in his life, right? He had every reason to quit more than anyone. He had every reason. I mean, he even talks about himself, about how he was shipwrecked and hungry and, and stoned and, you know, more things than we can imagine. And this was constantly, constantly, constantly all the time. But he was so committed to his mission that God had given him that he refused to give up, right? He gave up his own life before he gave up the mission that he was on, right? So even though he lived with ongoing problems and he, he had even health problems, you know, and the thorn in his side that he asked God to remove and God did not remove. So even though he had all these problems, okay, um, but he still was committed and actually each one of these problems helped him to grow, helped him to increase his faith, helped him to overcome. And now when we look at the life of St. Paul, 
we see him truly as a model, not just as a person who everything was so easy for him. And it was just like everything was like everywhere he went that God magically and miraculously made everything fall into place. No, right? We see him as a man who, yes, was supported by God and the work of the Holy Spirit, but he suffered and he experienced the problems of humanity just as anyone else. And that's what makes him relatable, right? We should expect that there are problems in whatever projects we're working on, whatever teams we're in, whatever relationships we're in. We shouldn't be so quick to give up, right? But to work harder and to, to take it more seriously, to bring God into the situation more. One of the reasons that God allows problems, whether it be problems of this sort or personal problems in my own life or in myself, right, is because God wants to enter more. We, we need to feel weak in order for God's strength to work. And this is what God told St. Paul when he asked him to remove the thorn. He said, my strength is perfected in weakness, right? Your weakness perfects my strength. When you are weak, like when St. Paul is weak, that is when the strength of God will be manifest, right? So we shouldn't expect that everything is always going to go smoothly. Um, next point is God judges us based on what we offer and not on what we accomplish, okay? What does that mean? We might get frustrated, okay, because we are not able to accomplish what we want to accomplish. But God doesn't look at the output. He doesn't look at what we were actually able to accomplish in the end. He looks at the effort that we put into it. So we might be in a situation that, yes, we are struggling, and maybe what I'm working on is struggling, and I'm not, I'm not able to finish or do or whatever because I have weakness, because I have struggles, because I have conflict, because of whatever. But in the end, God is not looking at whether I'm able to accomplish or not. He's looking at what is the effort that I'm putting in to do his will, right? In Matthew 10, 42, he says, and whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. God is saying, even what is as little as a cup of cold water that you are giving to someone, right? Because they are a disciple or in the name of a disciple, right? And even this person will be rewarded. God will reward us because of our effort, not because of our accomplishment. The last point I want to say about this is that problems are a part of our success, okay? We tend to be very task-oriented and we define success as achieving the task we are called to do. This is how we as human beings define success. But God doesn't look at it this way, right? In the eyes of God, we are the project, right? We are the project. Like in my eyes, the project I'm working on, that's the goal. In the eyes of God, I am the goal. The people are the goal the personal growth and salvation of the people, including the servants themselves who are working on the project is the goal. So even if our ultimate task that we are trying to accomplish appears to be hindered by problems, we should realize that God's goals are still being achieved nonetheless. And that maybe this is the only way that God's goals are being achieved. Maybe the only way that God will open my eyes to see some personal weakness I have is through the existence of these conflicts and problems. That yes, it prevents me from being as successful in finishing the tasks that I'm trying to finish. But maybe that's not the most important thing right now. Maybe the most important thing is for me to look at myself differently to realize that I have a problem in some area that I need to correct, right? But what short circuits this process? What makes it not fruitful is that if I quit, because if I quit, then now I'm no longer able to, to learn the lesson God wants me to learn. And I'm stuck in this pattern 
right? Where I'm, where I'm just essentially being self-destructive and I don't realize it, right? God does not need us to achieve his goals. If he wants to achieve his goals, he can achieve his goals in whatever way he wants to achieve them, right? But if we quit, then we no longer give the, God the opportunity to mold us. Like I'm thinking of the example of like the, the potter and the clay. The clay has to be on the pottery wheel and, and, and grant permission to the potter to mold, right? If the clay is willing to be on the pottery wheel and allow the potter to mold, yes, it's a difficult process, right? Like it, it's, it's a difficult process to be molded, to be changed, to be, you know, corrected, to be adjusted, right? And to be told you are not right the way you are, let me change you. Let me work on you so that I transform you from being in one form to another form. That is not an easy process. It's not easy for us to acknowledge that I'm not perfect as I am and I need to be changed. And that process of change is difficult, okay? But if that lump of clay on the pottery wheel imagines itself to be the most beautiful thing that ever existed and does not need to be changed or molded, then it will refuse that process. It'll refuse to be, but in the end, it will just stay a lump of clay, right? It will never be molded to be something beautiful in the eyes of the potter because it refuses to, to accept the process of doing so, okay? So problems and conflicts and these things, these are things that make us malleable, that make us willing to seek God for help, that make us more willing to allow God to change and to, for God to, to, to rebuke, for God to bring, you know, hope and of change in our lives, right? Um, but only if we recognize our own weaknesses, only if we recognize you know, the, the problems are, are in our lives are there for a reason, okay? So problems are part of our success. So I think it's very important as a principle, whether it be in the church or whether in our careers or whether in our relationships, that we don't, we're not so quick to give up when we fail and not so quick to give up when there are problems because we will find that if that is our way, then we will quit in every aspect of our lives because there is nothing that is not gonna have problems, right? So even when the problems get difficult, right, we should continue and, and asking God for strength to continue and, and seek his guidance on what is it that we should do. Okay. I think that's uh, all the questions we have time for today. Just conclude in a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, God, for this day. We ask for your goodness and guidance. We ask for your gentleness, O Lord, in our life and your mercy. Grant us your peace, O God, and help us to live by, day by day in hope looking forward, O oh Lord, to each day spending it with you, and not afraid, O oh Lord, of what the world might bring, but trusting, O oh God, that we are in your loving hands. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, here is as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a good night.